أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله تبارك وتعالى وسلم على سيدنا محمد سيدنا وسندنا وحبيبنا وشفيعنا ومولانا صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه وأزواجه وذرياته وأهل بيته ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وبعد الحمد لله We've reached this Mubarak eighth night of Ramadan Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us from its nur and from its rahmah وَهَبْ لَنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْوَحَّابِ we continue uh, reading about Hazrat uh, Mawlana Shaykh Hussein Ahmad Madani rahimahullah ta'ala the Shaykh of, uh, of the elder Mashaykh that I uh, met and saw uh, and we left off talking about his nightly devotions about how he would wake up and pray to Hajjud and make dhikr and uh, make dua and uh, cry profusely. Uh, we continue that Qari Muhammad Mia, who is actually the grandfather of the Shaykh al-Hadith of the madrasa I studied in. I studied in the Jamia Madaniya uh, from Mulana uh, Sayyid uh, Mahmoud Mia. Uh, his father, Sayyid Hamid Mia, was the youngest of uh, Mawlana Hussain Ahmad Madani's Khulafa. And his grandfather, Muhammad Mia, was one of the very close companions of the Sheikh, uh, Mawlana Hussain Ahmad Madani. Some of the best biographical information about him uh, was written by uh, Mawlana Muhammad Mia. And uh, as well as uh, a lot of really good historical and biographical uh, uh, writings about the ulama of the uh, Indian subcontinent. He writes regarding uh, uh, the Sheikh's tahajjud, that after tahajjud the Sheikh would become involved in dua and thereafter istighfar, seeking forgiveness from Allah. The Sheikh would keep a handkerchief, a handkerchief in front of him and then uh, Sheikh would start crying so profusely that lines of tears would flow from his eyes and he would sway from side to side uh, saying astaghfirullah alladhi la ilaha illa huwa al qayyum wa atubu ilayh i see i seek forgiveness from allah uh, whom there is no god other than him the living and the one through whom all things subsist and i turn to him in repentance During this time, the Shaykh would recite Farsi and Urdu couplets as well. He would remain in this condition until Fajr. Uh, this is something important that the ulama didn't just have this kind of synthetic relationship with the uh, with their dhikr and with their devotions. Um, look, if you're an Arab, you're an Arab. And if you're not an Arab, you're not an Arab. And... Uh, no one will doubt or debate the supremacy of the Arabic uh, language uh, that has true love for the Qur'an and true love for the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But at the same time, uh, even though there's much power in the, the words of the Arabic language, and there's a supremacy and there's a shut-off and an honor in them, 
sometimes if you need to convey what you need to convey to Allah Ta'ala in your devotions, sure, you're not going to read your salat in English. But in your du'as, it's okay. And it's in fact, in some sense, if you're able to better convey yourself in English, it's meritorious to make du'a in English. Or to express yourself by those things that have meaning uh, to you and for you in your devotions to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, because the words are just the words, they're empty, they have no soul in them and no spirit in them until or unless they're accompanied by the, serious, the feeling of sincerity inside of the heart. So our mashaykh, despite being themselves fluent in Arabic and teachers of Arabic and masters of Arabic and uh, the other ulum of Islam that are preserved and propagated and taught in Arabic, Despite that, they took some time to express themselves in their own simple, humble way. It's interesting, Arabic actually, there can be a great deal of uh, takabur and arrogance in it uh, by some people. Obviously, if you're an Arab, if you're a Bedouin, you know, in the, in the, uh, uh, the desert during the life of the Prophet ﷺ, it's just your language, you're just speaking it. There's no status involved in it, it's a very natural thing. But in a different context, perhaps a man makes dua and he you know in arabic and he thinks you know i'm better than other people because i'm the only person in the village or i'm the only person in the city or in the country or i'm the imam in the jama'ah and i'm the one who can read these beautiful duas in kalam when everybody else doesn't even know what that means and uh it's it's okay and it's good this is one of the beautiful things about the akabir mashaykh is that despite the great jalal and the great majesty they displayed uh, when it was matlub, when it was sought and when it was appropriate, like in the face of the enemy or during the time of, you know, the need for firm resolve. In their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I've seen from the mashaykh, I've seen and from what they tell me about their mashaykh, that these people were so humble uh, in their uh, entreating Allah ta'ala, they used to call upon him like a child calls upon their parents. And... Uh, I don't know who else I can uh, say reminds me of that more from my own teachers than Murabit Haddamin. Allah Ta'ala give him long life, who teaches in uh, Tuemirat in the Mahdara of Murabit al Hajj after his passing, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. May Allah Ta'ala preserve him and give him a long life. That uh, he's one of the most stern and manly men I know, uh, one of the most dignified men I know, both in his knowledge and in his way he carries himself. And in the, the force with which he speaks and the force with which he answers. But once he stands in the musalla and says, Allahu Akbar, to lead the prayer, uh, it just sounds like a child in front of like an adult. It just sounds like, like, a, like, a, like a six-year-old kid in front of like their, their parents. And not like nowadays six-year-old kids, but like a really simple six-year-old kid who's completely like, you know, uh, completely in need of his mother or father. The way he recites the Quran, there's no affectation or pretense in it um, it's in fact uh, very humble and very soft and very beautiful and uh, the way I heard the mashaykh uh, describe Mawlana Hussein Ahmad Madani's uh, 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 entreating Allah Ta'ala especially in this last part of the night in the tahajjud time you know I would imagine it's something like that like just some kid from the village uh, who's not seen anything in the world um, but who's just uh, in his simplicity and in his <laughs> Purity uh, and in his uh, uh, ikhlas, in the sense that the ikhlas we usually translate it as sincerity, but like it's 
it's like something has been purified of something that he's only for Allah Ta'ala and he's not for anybody else and that simplicity um, which doesn't require fancy words but can be moving uh, all the same uh, that he used to entreat Allah Ta'ala his humility when Shaykh became afflicted with pain in his knees he began experiencing difficulty in standing up from sajda and from the sitting pose of the prayer. Thus, Shaykh was forced to take support from his hands. Once the Shaykh rahimahullah ta'ala said, This is nothing but a punishment for my actions. Before, whenever I would see anyone taking support from his hands and standing up, I would object. Uh, now I've been punished for those thoughts and objections by having to do the same. In reality, this was no punishment, uh, Mulana Bayazid says. However, this is the level of the Shaykh's humble opinion regarding himself and his careful watch over his actions, that he would regard an objection against another as a sin. Uh, we, on the other hand, have made objecting against others our daily work. May Allah Ta'ala protect us. Um, this is, again, this is one of the precepts of the tariqah, and it's not a bid'ah, it's not a, a reprehensible innovation. Rather, it is what the sunnah is of the Prophet Wasallam that uh, regardless of your knowledge of right and wrong, you don't look down on other people. Uh, you don't look down on other people. Rather, you see other people as better than you. And you treat other people as better than you. And you think the best of other people, even people who are in tribulation, knowing that this person is being tested. And uh, in a moment's notice, you might be tested with what they're being tested. And you may not do as well as they are. And they may be given... Uh, whatever obedience you have or something better than it and they may be more beautiful in it than you and this is the teaching of the mashaykh uh, through the silsila uh, it's well known about Mulana uh, Sheikh Sidi Ahmed al-Rifai that he said in all sincerity and humility in the majlis uh, gathered filled with filled with uh, his own disciples that may be gathered on the day of judgment with, with Pharaoh and with Haman if uh, I see myself as being better than any of you. And uh, uh, this, is, this is what the Shaykh would say. Imagine like a person is like, you know, a teacher of fiqh, right? In the Hanafi madhab, it's, you're not supposed to uh, get up with your hands. Rather, it's considered a pre a preferred that a person should uh, get up uh, on their feet without taking support from their hands. And so it's not like he's objecting in order to just be mean or arrogant to people. Rather, it's actually the training of fiqh that the fuqaha of his madhab gave the uh, judgment that this is a superior way of praying salat. <laughs> but because, and it's a natural thing that, that such a thought should come to a person sideways, that, oh, look, this person is not following the madhab properly. These types of thoughts actually are a, 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 an obsessive compulsive disorder of people who study fiqh too much and it's very common in people that study fiqh a lot that they'll start to nag and nitpick on little things to the point where the details distract them from the bigger picture uh and so you'll see people who like you know for them saying amin bil jahar or raising the hands more than once or saying it quietly or only raising them once in the beginning of the prayer or these kind of like smaller ancillary issues of the, of the sharia we don't say that they're unimportant but they're far from being the most important thing in deen and those things that there's a difference of opinion, at some point you have to be able to let go. We see people are not able to let go because they obsess with these things. Whereas the one who obsesses with his own islah, with his own rectification, that person will know the fiqh and practice the fiqh, but they'll be more beholden to their own, uh, to their own defects. 
And the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ teaches us that this is the, the, the superior mode of being, and this is the mode of being of the awliya, that a person is fortunate, and it's a sign that Allah loves a person, that they're preoccupied with their own faults, uh, so much so that it distracts them from even noticing the faults of others. Hazrat Shaykh al-Islam's patience and forbearance. For a very long time, Hazrat uh, uh, suffered from pain in his knees and weakness. The pain by the grace of Allah eventually went away, but uh, uh, the Shaykh's weakness remained until the end. Due to these ailments, the Shaykh would take a while to get up from sitting in the prayer. Uh, Shaykh would sit on his uh, uh, posterior uh, when in the sitting pose, meaning tawarruk. He would, he would not sit on his feet, but he would sit on one side of his backside. And then he would take support from his hands to get up. Such was uh, Shaykh's condition that an onlooker would feel pity for him. Shaykh rahimahullah ta'ala, while going to teach hadith, would have to climb up to the top floor of the Darul Ulum. Due to Shaykh's weakness and pain, he would encounter great difficulty in climbing up the stairs. Once Shaykh mentioned to the principal uh, uh, Qari uh, Tayyib uh, ta'ala, regarding this problem and requested a lift be installed. A man from Calcutta was prepared to pay for the lift. All that was required was the principal's permission. Qari Tayyib, however, felt by installing a lift, it would take up... Uh, the space of one classroom that it would take space away from the uh, from the you know where teaching could take place. Therefore, Qari Tayyib didn't give give permission. After this, uh, uh, Sheikh uh, never went back to ask for permission again. He continued making his two daily trips to the Darul Hadith uh, and back, climbing up on the high and hard stairs with great difficulty. The Sheikh would reach the top, taking support from his walking stick, yet he never once complained uh, or mentioned his plight to anyone again. There are many other such incidents in the Sheikh's life, but due to fear of lengthening this book, they have been left out. Perhaps the most difficult time the Sheikh ever faced was during the year 1947 when untold and unimaginable atrocities and oppression were meted out to Sheikh from the side of his political opponents. There was that time uh, when the Khilafat movement was in rapid progress, during which every Muslim was a diehard fan of the Sheikh. Suddenly then, conditions took a sharp turn and friend turned into foe. No stone was left unturned in causing harm and difficulty to the Sheikh. However, his tolerance and patience during those days as well uh, were there, uh, and they were there such that it cannot be explained. This is something that uh, requires a little bit of, I guess, extra explanation, that uh, the Sheikh, his political philosophy was that the Indian subcontinent should not be divided, that this uh, land, uh, the United India, was our homeland, and it was uh, a, a land ruled and administered by our forefathers, both as Indians and as Muslims. And to see it broken apart was something he was not prepared to see, even though the majority population always of the Indian subcontinent was Muslims. He had an idea that if it's broken up now, it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to bring back together again and for the Muslims to rule again the way they did from before that we are an inseparable part of the land and the land is an inseparable part of us, which is completely true. To this day, even the most diehard, uh, fanatical, Muslim-hating uh, uh, Hindus, they cannot speak a sentence without saying a word in Persian or a word in Arabic. 
Nobody comes to visit the country for anything except for the Turath of our forefathers. Nobody wants to eat the food except for the food that our forefathers made. Nobody wants to listen to the music or the culture of anyone except for the culture and music that was developed while our forefathers ruled as Muslims. And we brought good to the country. And we don't say that, you know, like everybody else is a loser and we hate them. Rather, while the Muslims were in charge, it was a good time. It was a time of material prosperity, of cultural prosperity, of spiritual prosperity, much like in the Muslim lands in the West, the Christians and Jews who lived under Islam were more pious than the Christians and Jews uh, that lived outside of the Muslim world. Uh, Why? Because Islam has a good influence on people, even those Christians and Jews who would never convert to Islam over the graves of their uh, forefathers, they would hate to convert to Islam and they hate Muslims. Because they see Muslims praying five times a day, because they see Muslims, their women are chaste, because they see Muslims, their, uh, uh, you know, masajid are filled in Ramadan, because they see Muslims giving charity, etc. It made them also more motivated to do those things that are spiritually beneficial. We don't say that they attain salvation through them, but there is spiritual benefit in their piety and in their good deeds for them in this world. And, uh, you know, he, he, he said, you know, his philosophy was he didn't want to see that fall apart. A person might say, well, look, you know, like uh, it had to happen. Okay, that's your political opinion. That's okay. You're entitled to have that opinion. And a person might say, well, if we were all in India and Pakistan was never separated, then look, we would have been in a garbage can. How do you know? You don't know. Uh, if opens a door for shaitan, like the Prophet said, what happened happened. Allah Ta'ala chose it and decreed that it happened. Now that it's done, we don't argue about it. But from beforehand, it's well known that uh, Mawlana Hussain Ahmad Madani <coughs> was against the partition of India and Pakistan. And so this thing that, the, that that's being mentioned is that there was a political party, the Muslim League, who was mostly made up of, at the time at least, of um, the secularized pro-British landholding class of Muslims who said that we should partition uh, 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 India and Pakistan and make a separate partitioned homeland for uh, the Muslims. Uh, now, the issue is this is that still when you when that partition happened, there's more Muslims in India than there are in uh, Pakistan. But yes, there were between Bengal and uh, what they call East Bengal and between uh, 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 what's now Pakistan. Um, that those areas at least had a Muslim majority population. Still, there were uh, you know hundreds of millions of Muslims in um, in what's going to be India as well. So Sheikh was not in favor of that partition, and uh, whatever. Again, regardless of your views of, uh, about that that issue, the the point here is that those people who should have left a political issue to the realm of politics, um, they themselves. Actually, and most of them, or many of them, I should say, were people who were not uh, particularly pious or religious, who didn't really care for madaris or didn't really care much for uh, salat and for uh, you know preserve, preservation of knowledge or dhikr or any of those things. And the you know the proof of that is look, with the exception of Mufti Shabir Ahmad, who was the first Sheikh Islam of uh, of of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, almost none of the and this is a fact. This is not me disparaging people. It's just a fact. Almost none of the the 
founding group of leaders of Pakistan were very religious. Muhammad Ali Jinnah was a convert to Ismailism from Zoroastrianism. It said that he had not prayed uh, Salat before Pakistan was made uh, uh, all that time. Um, it's known that uh, many of the rest of the uh, first uh, uh, cohort of leaders uh, in, uh, in in Pakistan after it received its uh, uh, independence, they were also secularist people. They were not people who were particularly um, part particularly beholden to Deen in any way that our forefathers would recognize. Rather, they were modernists that uh, were more akin to the Aligarh. Uh, Sir Sayyid Ahmed, kind of revisionist and modernist uh, uh, school of Islam, you know, the thawabit of Islam be kind of reinterpreted to be housebroken to fit modernity. And, uh, you know, the, the first foreign minister of uh, Pakistan, for example, uh, Mir uh, 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 Zafrullah Khan, was actually a Qadiani. He wasn't even a Muslim in the first place. He believed in some uh, kind of screwball guy who claimed he was a Nabi uh, uh, in uh, late British Punjab. So you have you have this this kind of tension and angst um, that was there. And uh, those people actually uh, harassed and uh, harassed not just in terms of speaking ill, but they actually physically uh, beat and uh, physically uh, humiliated uh, uh, the Sheikh on a number of occasions. And uh, the Sheikh, he would forgive people. Uh, to the point where, uh, you know, there are people in uh, East Punjab uh, that saw in a, a dream that the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam came to them and said, uh, you know, isn't it enough for you that you killed the first Hussein that you have to now uh, keep pushing the second uh, son of mine uh, to the point that you want to martyr him as well? And uh, um, it was a sad. It was a sad incident in uh, our, uh, you know, our history. And to be very frank with you, this type of behavior—it's still there with the ummah. A person who speaks the haq, the crowd can turn on them on a dime, uh, and there are people who are un uneducated about the deen and don't have a whole lot of commitment to anything other than nationalism or, uh, uh, in order to some sort of phony or empty ideology in terms of their daily commitment to deen or knowledge or whatever. It's not really all that much there. And that mob, when it turns on a person, it becomes violent and it becomes deadly. And you hear the genocidal uh, thoughts and uh, words of such people on a daily basis in uh, quote-unquote educated. There's an expression in Arabic, uh, the educated uh, ignoramuses of, uh, of our qawm, both in India or Pakistan or in other parts of the Muslim world as well, uh, in which they'll say things. They'll say, oh, you know, scholars should just round them up and kill them all. I say, well, why are you Muslim in the first place, uh, bro? But uh, that's, I guess, not a discussion for this time in this place. But the Sheikh actually had to deal with a lot of these types of people. This is one of the things I was talking to Sheikh Tamim the other day, and he was telling me that this Hawan, this uh, Hawan, this was something Allah Ta'ala subjected his prophets to, alayhim salam, that, that a person will be of a high status with Allah Ta'ala, but Allah will make him uh, with a group of the people uh, somebody who is like considered and treated like they're worthless. And I've seen this hawan, uh, if it's going to touch the the, the prophets, then the awliya and the mashaykh, um, it's part of the sunnah of Allah Ta'ala in his giving tarbiyah, in his, in his shining and polishing 
uh, of the 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 Oliya and the Mashaikh that they were they're going to be subjected to this hawan this being treated as if they're worthless by the people uh, as a test to see is a person going to be shaken by that or are they going to stay with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah ta'ala give us all tawfiq uh, the sheikh would on seeing a person's beard shaved uh, he would uh, uh, become very angry the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam strictly emphasized on his ummah khaliful mushrikina wa luha wahfus shawarib it's a hadith of Sahih Bukhari opposed the idolaters and lengthened the beard and trimmed the mustache once two messengers of the king of Persia presented themselves in the honorable presence of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with long mustaches and shaven beards the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam became upset over their appearance and reprimanded them and he asked who has instructed you to take such a, uh, an appearance uh, they said our king the, our master the king of Persia then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, responded, لَكِنَّ رَبِّي أَمَرَنِي بِإِعْفَاءِ الْلِحِيَةِ وَقَصِّ شَوَارِبِي He says that my master, he replied to them that my master, uh, uh, my Lord, he commanded me to uh, uh, let grow uh, uh, the beard and to trim my mustache. Uh, from the above, it's quite apparent that the shaving of the beard uh, is the way of the fire worshippers and the polytheists uh, a beard is the mark of a believer and part of his fitrah, his aboriginal nature, his organic nature, which was practiced by all of the prophets, alayhim as-salam. Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha narrates that the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Asharun minal fitrati qassu shawaribi wa i'fa'il lihya. Ten things are from the aboriginal natural disposition of a human being. Uh, and from amongst them is trimming the mustache and letting the beard grow. Another aspect is that the beard is one of the clear distinguishing factors between a man and a woman. It's said that, uh, uh, you know, our newest uh, appointee to the Supreme Court when asked uh, what the definition of a woman was, she declined to, uh, <laughs> she declined to elaborate. And uh, this has nothing to do with my political opinion of whether she should have been appointed or not. But this is where we've gotten to with this, uh, this issue. The beard appears on the face of a man only, not a woman. Whoever removes the beard has chosen to make his appearance like that of a female, thus inviting upon himself the curses of the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The following appears in one narration. La'ana Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam al-mushtabihina or al-mutashabihina bil-rijali min al-rijali bil-nisa'i wal-mutashabihati min al-nisa'i bil-rijal. That the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa cursed men who imitate women uh, and uh, uh, women who imitate men. And this is, not, this is not to say, by the way, some people in their natural disposition, some men are slightly effeminate and some women are uh, slightly uh, masculine. If that's the way you're born, that's the way you're born. Here, tashabbuh is the, the word that's used. It means going out of your way, to, you know, takalluf bil mushabaha. That going out of your way to, uh, you know, conscientiously make choices to make yourself not look or present like the gender that you were born with. Due to these factors, allowing the beard to grow is compulsory and to trim it less than a fifth length is totally prohibited. Uh, obviously, this is from the, uh, the, the fatwa of, uh, of the sheikh who's writing this book. This is the same fatwa uh, of our mashaykh in the subcontinent. It's the same fatwa of our mashaykh in, uh, uh, in Mauritania. 
Some people have some kalam about this, but the point is, is that you're supposed to grow the beard. You're not supposed to shave it. It's haram. My understanding in the three madhabs, it's haram. And in the fourth madhab, the madhab of Imam Shafi'i, the, the opinion exists also that it's haram to cut it. But the fatwa position is that it's makru. Uh, uh, but still, it's not something that a person should do. Uh, due to these factors, allowing uh, the beard to grow is compulsory to trim it less than a fist length is prohibited. The jurists of Islam stated that no jurist uh, uh, has given permission for the beard to be cut less than a fist length. And he's obviously writing this from the Hanafi position. Uh, Shaykh al-Islam, Mulan Hussain Ahmad Madani rahimahullah ta'ala used to say that the beard is the uniform of a Muslim and compulsory to adopt. He would regard the beard as a distinguishing factor between a believer and an unbeliever. It is the duty of every Muslim to ensure that he gives the shara'i beard its due importance and to a greater extent those involved in the learning and propagation of uh, Islamic knowledge uh, should give as well uh, even more uh, importance to it. May Allah bless us all with the good fortune of fulfilling this shara'i obligation. Ameen. If ever a clean-shaven Muslim had come to the shaykh with some need, uh, the shaykh would rebuke uh, his appearance, but no sooner uh, would the words of Toba and repentance leave the mouth of the visitor that the shaykh's heart would become filled with love and kindness and happiness. The shaykh would inquire about his needs and bless him with valuable advice and see to the fulfillment of his needs. The shaykh's happiness on the Toba of another uh, could well be likened to the similitude given in the hadith regarding Allah's pleasure over the Toba of his slave. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, Allah's Happiness when his servant seeks repentance could well be likened to the happiness of a villager who lost his camel with all of his provisions. Losing heart of ever finding his camel, he resigns himself to death, thus lays down to sleep under a tree. Upon awakening to his great joy and happiness, he finds his camel and all of his provisions again beside him. At this stage, his joy knows no bounds, and in his excitement, wishing to thank Allah, he fumbles and says, O oh Allah, you are my slave and I am your Lord. Not saying uh, this misspeech uh, because of any reason except for, except for being overwhelmed by excitement and joy at receiving his, or, uh, his provisions again and finding his riding beast again. Uh, the shaykh, uh, his happiness was very similar when he would hear of the toba of any person from sin, their repentance. On one occasion, the following question was posed to the shaykh. Why is it that you receive non-believers with a smiling face, yet if perchance a clean-shaven Muslim has to appear before you, uh, you uh, show anger? The Shaykh Rahimullah Ta'ala replied, Firstly, the way I behave is a private matter. You have no right to interfere. Secondly, my anger and dislike when seeing prohibited acts perpetrated is nothing compared to the anger the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would display when Allah Ta'ala's commands were being violated. In short, the stronger uh, one's conviction and faith in Islam becomes, the more one will dislike sin. Similarly, such incidents are many. At times, just by looking at a person, the shaykh would manage to break through the walls of uh, blocking a man from spiritual progress. In front of such great luminaries, one's own nafs normally loses courage. It fears admonishment and thus prefers to lay low. Uh, through the company of a spiritual guide, one's nafs weakens and attains uh, reformation thereafter, uh, and such reformation becomes more simple and enjoyable. Uh, it's said in a poem, Yak zamani suhbat ba awliya sad salat that a few moments uh, or a few uh, moments in the company of the awliya of Allah Ta'ala is more beneficial than a thousand years of 
of worshipping Allah Ta'ala uh, uh, sincerely uh, and without showing off. The Shaykh was favored with that special grace and mercy of Allah Ta'ala with which very few are blessed. To explain this is difficult, however, but it could be easily understood from the following example. It is necessary to understand that on whoever Allah, His special mercy descends, He will soon find Himself afflicted with some problem or difficulty. However, instead of experiencing pain in His difficulty, the lover of Allah finds joy. On one occasion, I can recall the Shaykh having to rush to catch his train. Due to the weakness in his knees, the Shaykh finally reached the coach exhausted. At the moment, witnessing the Shaykh's condition, I thought to myself, Allah's love for uh, this Shaykh must be really severe, that Allah wishes uh, that he never be left in peace. Throughout the journey, I witnessed that if at a certain time the Shaykh was fortunate to travel peacefully, he would without a doubt experience some difficulty. I was amazed at the manner in which the Shaykh conducted himself through every such occasion. Ease and difficulty created no difference in his temperament, nor would there be extreme joy and ease nor grief during difficulty. No matter what the people have behaved with uh, the Shaykh, he would never show any signs of complaint. So just a note, inshallah, I think this is a good place to leave off for today, but just a note with regards to the beard. Mashallah, everybody always freaks out whenever somebody mentions the beard. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously the pious uh, uh, listeners of the Ramadan late night majlis are not going to freak out about it. But, uh, you know, just so you know, <laughs> this is the era where people were abandoning their practices of Islam and of the deen. That those people that you know are now Dr. Shah and Dr. Sayyid and Dr. Qazi and Dr. Uh, 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 you know, Siddiqi and Faruqi and etc. Uh, that that Shah was, uh, you know, his forefathers, now that he's become a doctor, an engineer, or some corporate guy or works for Goldman Sachs and is like making a killing, quote unquote. Um, that, that Shah used to be a Sheikh of Tariqa. He used to guide people toward uh, uh, Allah through his, uh, uh, you know, through his spiritual state. And now he's uh, fleecing the public. And that uh, uh, Sayyid, uh, was a son of the Prophet ﷺ's noble house. And he also used to serve the Ummah uh, uh, as his primary preoccupation. Uh, that Qazi used to be a judge that used to dispense justice uh, and restore uh, uh, peace in the Ummah after uh, it was uh, thrown off of balance. Um, that, uh, you know, I've actually met their people, their last names are like Molana, their last names are Mullah, their last names are all these different things that indicate that they were people of genius. They're still people of genius. Some of these people, most of them still are of abnormal intelligence. But that intelligence was used in the service of what? Of Islam. And Allah Ta'ala says uh, in his book uh, that uh, if you don't, you know, if you don't strive in his way, that uh, he will replace you with an, another people other than you. Uh, uh, and uh, that's not difficult for Allah Ta'ala. And that's no loss for Allah Ta'ala. The loss is only our own. So these were those people who were trying to preserve that tradition. Preserve the tradition of the Mashaykh of Mujaddad al-Thani, Shaykh Ahmad Sarhandi, Rahimullah Ta'ala, Shah Uliullah, those great luminaries, Shah Abdul Haq, those great the, uh, Assembly of Jurists that compiled the Fatawa Alamgiriya, 
those great khanqas, those great poets, those great knowers of Allah Ta'ala, that their own uh, uh, children were fleeing from holding fast to this deen. And so at that time, people say, well, why do the mullahs uh, you know, obsess over having a beard? It's like such a small thing. And that's ex exactly the point. Uh, keeping a beard is not difficult. Um, all you have to do is just not shave it. It's really easy. But for whatever reason, it was made the mark by the colonizer and by their uh, early and most fervent converts to uh, secularism and materialism to mock and jeer uh, anybody who shows up uh, in the face of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, to the point where there are people literally are so brainwashed when they see somebody with a beard, they have a visceral fear of such a person. Even though, man, the uh, people who bombed your country into the Stone Age, they're all clean shaven. The people who gave the, own, you know, the orders to dump um, depleted uranium munitions on your children, all of them are wearing suits and ties. Uh, and none of them go to the Khanqah and say, Allah, Allah. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, people have, you know, bought the, 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 they, they've taken the bait and they've uh, bought the snake oil and uh, Allah help us all. Allah help us all. What kind of a strange situation is the ummah in when the sick person, the one person that they fear more than anybody else is the doctor? I mean, it doesn't really bode well for, uh, you know, getting the illness treated so, uh, you know, I, I think that, that it is an important thing and you should keep a beard. And if someone in your family, you know, even if you can't keep one, you know, the most important place the beard has to grow is inside of your heart, you know. And in that sense, a woman can keep a beard just like a man. That you have to know that this is something Rasulullah did and commanded people to do. And don't fight it. Just say inside of your heart it's better than, than not having it. And if you're a man and you're afraid you're going to get fired from your job or this is going to happen or that's going to happen or whatever, whether you keep it or not, at least keep it inside of your heart. You know, don't be one of those haters who are like, well, you know, people with beards are a bunch of hypocrites. Well, maybe there are some hypocrites with beards, but you know it's the sunnah of the Prophet and you should know that there's khair in it. Thereafter, only after that step will you get benefit from growing one if you grow one. And uh, after that, you've already made 80% of the journey. That it should be there inside of your heart first. Then if you can keep it on your face, who's stopping you? Especially those of us who live in America, Canada, etc. Nobody's stopping us for any of these things. Um, and so I think it is important that people should keep it. It should be mentioned uh, in the masajid. It should be mentioned in the durus of ilm. And if it wasn't for the extremely brittle state of the faith and the iman of our, our people, the extremely brittle state of the people's love for the Prophet وسلم, an extremely bitter, brittle state of their love of the Sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, should be mentioned more. Sometimes I myself only recoil from mentioning it out of fear because somebody who when they hear the mention, they're going to utter some sort of stupidity uh, as a retort, which will take them out of Iman. But uh, you know, if you have enough Iman not to be there, it's something that should be mentioned. And uh, even if you can't do it yourself, if one of your relatives or one of your friends do it, you should say an encouraging word instead of making a mockery or joke about it. Uh, because it's not a mockery, it's not a joke. Every place the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is upheld, it repels the, uh, the, the wrath of Allah Ta'ala from those people. وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُعَذِّبَهُمْ وَأَنْتَ فِيهِمْ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ مُعَذِّبَهُمْ وَهُمْ يَسْتَغْفِرُونَ Allah Ta'ala he says even about the mushrikeen of Quraysh that Allah Ta'ala was not going to send his torment down upon them as long as you are amongst them. And Allah Ta'ala would, would not be their tormentor 
as long as they keep seeking forgiveness. Meaning the presence of the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in any which way is a source of barakah and it repels punishment and it repels uh, uh, torment and tribulation. And I think that's a good thing. And so should you. Allah Ta'ala give us all tawfiq. Inshallah, we'll continue with the, the, the story of Mawana Sayyid Hussain Ahmad Madani, rahimahullah ta'ala, if Allah Ta'ala gives us life and tawfiq to reach tomorrow. Wa sallallahu tabarak wa ta'ala wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.